Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It's great to be at New York University. I am a New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, uh, did my doctorate at Fordham, but grew up in Las Vegas. Uh, actually, no one really grows up in Las Vegas, do they? So this evening, I want to. I'm going to talk about something, a topic that I've been interested in for over 20 years. Uh, In the late 1990s, uh, in at least American evangelicalism, that is the uh, uh, segment of American Christianity that tends to be conservative Protestant, there was a movement called began and still exists called the intelligent design movement. And when I went to law school in the early 2000s at WashU, uh, I did a special degree in law called the Master of Juridical Studies. And my dissertation was on whether you could teach intelligent design in public schools uh, without violating the constitution. So I became very interested at the time with mostly the legal question, the question of what is permissible in public school science classes in terms of of what the First Amendment forbids. Uh, But over the last, maybe since about two, three years after publishing that dissertation as a book, uh, I became skeptical of intelligent design. Um, uh, As I began to read more critics of intelligent design from the perspective of Thomas Aquinas. And so what I want to do uh, this evening is to kind of share with you how I reasoned. <laughs> uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, the history of the debates in America over teaching evolution and creation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, say a little bit about uh, some of the leading figures in the intelligent design movement, uh, most of whom are actually friends of mine. So uh, who disagree with my critique. Uh, so if you, if you uh, have your reservations, you can, uh, you can Google me and them and, and see how we've interacted with each other. So um, the American story of, of creationism. So in the early 20th century, there was a very famous trial called the Scopes Trial. And the Scopes trial uh, concerned a uh, 
statute in Tennessee, which was found in other states that forbade the teaching of Darwinian evolution in any of its public institutions, including universities. And there was uh, a gentleman named John Scopes who lived in Dayton, Tennessee, who actually responded to an ad by the American Civil Liberties Union saying, we're looking for a teacher that we could, uh, 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 who would be willing to take the risk of teaching evolution uh, so that he or she could be arrested <laughs> and there could be a trial and can challenge the Tennessee law. And so what happened is that they did, they, they did challenge it. Uh, then both sides had very, two very famous attorneys, Clarence Darrow, who was the attorney for the ACLU, and William Jennings Bryan, uh, a, uh, ran for president several times, uh, both kind of important public figures in America. Uh, the state of Tennessee winds up winning the case, but in terms of the cultural effect, it, it, it had a, quite a negative effect upon the perception that Americans had about uh, American evangelicals and fundamentalists. And so what arose during this period, roughly between the, the 1940s, 1920s to today, uh, that world, that, that world of evangelicalism uh, began creating uh, colleges and universities and uh, uh, institutions uh, that uh, responded to uh, the challenge of what they perceived to be the challenge of Darwinian evolution to their particular understanding of scripture. And so if, in fact, um, uh, you know, these citizens, uh, the, the vast number of evangelicals during this time, saw Darwinism in, in, in much the same way that many atheists see it today, as a kind of defeater to what they understood to be the biblical view of creation described in the book of Genesis. According to this account, God created the universe in six literal days, and on each day following the first, he added to his creation what he uh, had brought into being the prior day. S suppose you believe like that, um, as many American fundamentalists and evangelical Christians do, that this, a that this biblical account should be read literally. If you do, you're not too keen on accepting the Darwinian story that all the diversity and complexity of biological life on planet Earth arose from a one-celled common ancestor. For according to that story, all that was necessary for our present biological world to have arisen is natural selection working on random mutation. So if you accept that and you create institutions um, uh, to sort of protect and defend this particular account, uh, what you get is uh, institutions that include uh, statements of faith that faculty are required to agree to in order to teach there. So let me give you some examples of what I mean. I'm going to eventually tie this into the intelligent design movement. So Patrick Henry College in Virginia affirms, quote, that humans and each kind of organism resulted from God's distinct and supernatural creative intervention and did not result from a natural evolutionary process nor from an evolutionary process that God secretly directed. In particular, God created man in a distinct and supernatural creative act, forming the specific man Adam from non-living material and the specific woman Eve from Adam. By the way, uh, you should... 
all have a copy of, okay, very good. So the uh, very, very sparse notes, but a kind of order of what we're going to go over. Uh, other schools, uh, Ohio's uh, Cedarville University states, quote, we believe that the scriptures provide a literal and historical account of God's creation of all things. The climax of the six days of creation was the special, immediate, and personal creation of human life. The first humans, Adam and Eve, were directly created, not evolved from previous life forms. Biola University in Southern California teaches that, quote, the existence and nature of the creation is due to the direct miraculous power of God, the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of kinds of living things, and the origin of humans cannot be explained adequately apart from reference to that intelligent exercise of power. A proper understanding of science does not require that all phenomena in nature must be explained solely by reference to physical events, laws, and chance. However, any creation models which seek to harmonize science in the Bible should maintain that God providentially directs his creation and especially, especially intervened in at least the above-mentioned points in the creation process, unquote. What stands out about these doctrinal statements is how they place divine action seemingly in competition with the deliverance of science, as if our scientific accounts of natural phenomena must in some sense be incomplete in order to make room for God to act. This is why one finds in these statements language that suggests that absent divine intervention, what remains is a kind of autonomous creation. And what I want to argue is that that kind of thinking about the relationship between science and theology is found in the intelligent design movement. And I think that it reflects a diminished view of divine action, how God can work. And I'm going to offer as an alternative to it, uh, what I think is Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas's way of looking at uh, God as the first cause. So, um, so with that understanding, well, let me just, just kind of remind us what, so selecting the, the portions from those statements of faith. So you find in these, the quotes that I just mentioned um, that the beginning of every living thing is a result of, quote, God's distinct and supernatural creative intervention. Adam and Eve were directly created and did not evolve from previous life forms. God providentially directs his creation and specially intervened. And there are aspects of creation that can, quote, be explained solely by reference to physical events, laws, and chance. With this understanding of scripture and divine action in place, it's not difficult to see why both, by both creationists and atheists like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, uh, Sam Harris, and others maintain that if Darwinian evolution is true, it is unlikely that the Christian God exists. This is why starting uh, with the Scopes trial, which I mentioned earlier in 1925, the teaching of evolution in American public schools becomes highly controversial. Uh, so for a vast majority of evangelical and fundamentalist Christians, teaching their children that evolution is true is tantamount to teaching them atheism. For this reason, in some places, including Tennessee and Arkansas, the teaching of evolution in public schools was prohibited by law. But what happens is the Supreme Court actually deals with a couple of cases, one called Epperson versus Arkansas in 1968, and then eventually in another case called Edwards versus Aguilar in 1987, saying that those kind of laws violate the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution, meaning that 
because these laws were motivated by uh, uh, by citizens who wanted to teach uh, uh, Christian doctrine as they understood it, that it that it it really wasn't a matter of science; it was a matter of religion. Now, there's there are actually arguments that one can make to dispute that reading, uh, but as as things uh, turned out, uh, creationism is prohibited from being taught in public school science classes. You can still talk about it in other classes. Uh, so what happens? Well, soon after, uh, uh, this is when the intelligent design movement arises. And I, I'm not going to give the, uh, typically people that are, some of the atheist critics of ID uh, will, will refer to it as, uh, what is it, creationism in a cheap tuxedo. <laughs> And I think that's really not accurate. I think it's a it's it's a kind of defamation for these uh, thinkers. I think uh, I think it's clear it's clear to me that the defenders of intelligent design are well credentialed, very intelligent, sincere individuals that are not, I think, the kind of creationists uh, that were found at the Scopes trial and were advocating these laws. I think that they are, I think they're mistaken, but I, I, I think that the kind of case they're making is qualitatively different. Uh, so I want to just you know, say that without, uh, you know, I, I want to show respect for them. Uh, but uh, I think that ID uh, is, is similar to creationism insofar as its advocates seem to assume the creationist view of divine action and interventionism. So I think this clearly comes out in the, in the work of, uh, of both Bill Dembski and Michael Behe. Bill Dembski um, is now actually, I think he's retired from the academy, but he was once a colleague of mine at Baylor. He taught there, he was on the faculty there between 1999 and 2005. And Michael Behe is a professor of biology at Lehigh University. Um, both uh, published uh, important books defending their view. Uh, Bill published a monograph with Cambridge University Press called The Design Inference, uh, I think in 1997. And, and uh, B, he published a, a book called Darwin's Black Box in 1996. Um, and they both were, they, when they came out, it caused quite a stir. Um, so uh, I think that the ID advocates, in this sense, have hold a view similar to the old-time creationists, insofar as they, the way in which they talk about design, or the way how they detect design, seems to buy into this kind of interventionist view. And I want to argue that that interventionist view is contrary to the way uh, the Catholic Church thinks about divine providence and the way in which God acts as a first cause. So let's talk about uh, Dembski and, um, and uh, Behe. So Dembski, uh, if you look on your notes, I, I, I have here uh, talk about Dembski's explanatory filter. Uh, what's that? So Dembski in his book, The Design Inference, and several other books as well, his project focuses on what he calls the explanatory filter, or EF a standard by which he claims one can reasonably infer that an aspect of the natural world 
or the natural world as a whole has an intelligent cause. We, of course, recognize intelligent causes as producing certain artifacts. For example, houses, bridges, stained glass panels. Why do I say stained glass pal panels? Because my wife is a stained glass artist. And they are designed. Uh, they don't result from an explosion in her studio. <laughs> uh, they're, they're designed. Um, so houses, bridges, stained glass panels, coherent sentences, computer code. But how do we distinguish these artifacts from those things that do not seem to have resulted from an intelligent cause, as Dembski understands that term? For example, a pile of rocks, dropped Scrabble letters that happen to spell Bill, a puddle of rain. So let's say you're eating alphabet soup, and your name is Bob, and your spoon, you look in the spoon and it's B-O-B. Is it reasonable to infer that your soup is speaking to you? Probably not. Now, if your name is Nebuchadnezzar and you happen to, <laughs> I would, you know, <laughs> probably seek a priest out. Uh, so maybe your soup is possessed. Or, um, so, um, so, for example, a pile of rocks, dropped Scrabble letters, that happen to spell Bill, a puddle of rain. This is where the explanatory filter comes in. According to Dembski, this is a quote from, from his book uh, uh, called Intelligent Design, quote, when called to explain an event, object, or structure, we have a decision to make. Where are we going to attribute it to necessity, chance, or design? Unquote. Necessity refers to scientific laws. For example, if I let go of a Scrabble letter tile I am holding in my hand, uh, gravity necessitates that it falls to the earth. Now, suppose I toss 19 of these tiles into my backyard and a gust of wind carries them onto my neighbor's lawn. As you would guess, the tiles land in such a way that they exhibit no identifiable pattern. Some of them are face up, others upside down. You can only see 12 of the letters um, that I have on the sheet, uh, M-N-A-O-A-S-Y-S-I-C-I-N. Although necessity is certainly present in this result, since without gravity or the scientific laws governing the wind, the tiles would not have landed in the places they did. From my neighbor's perspective and mine, my undirected tossing of the tiles makes their landing a product of chance, just as the result of a coin toss or a roll of the dice is a product of chance. What about design? Suppose my neighbor finds on his lawn the same 19 Scrabble tiles, except they are arranged in this way. My owner is a physician. My neighbor is a doctor, so that's why, um, that's why I'm using that example. So, so this, according to Dembski, would be an example of design because it exhibits what he calls specified complexity. You get there, reasons Dembski, by going through each step of the explanatory filter. That is, when trying to figure out whether an object, event, or structure is designed, regardless of whether it is artifactual or natural, one must first exclude necessity and chance. How does one do that? Consider the dropping of the Scrabble tile. There, this, that is no different than a leaf falling from a tree or an asteroid heading toward Earth. Each of these, like the gravity-governed tile, given certain scientific laws, moves by necessity. It is specified. But in the case of the tossed tiles moved by the wind, things are a bit different. There is complexity to the configuration of the tiles that results, since it involves a multitude of objects, each of which is indifferent to the other. What I mean by indifferent is there's nothing intrinsic to the tiles that inclines them to be part of an intelligible sentence. To create that requires an agent to choose the right letters and put them in the right order. So on Dembski's account, the configuration of the tossed tiles on the lawn is complex, but is not specified. But in the third scenario, 
The pattern of the letters, letters on my lawn, my owner is a physician, is both complex and specified. Because this pattern is highly improbable to have risen by necessity or chance, and because it is detachable. Now, what does Dembski mean by detachable? It means that it's a pattern that we can know apart from encountering the Scrabble let sentence on my neighbor's lawn. We can, because of that, we conclude the pattern was produced by an intelligible agent. The configuration of tiles after the random toss is not detachable, since it is not a pattern that we could know apart from having first encountered it right after the tiles landed. Think, for example, of the blackjack card counter, who is detected by the conscientious pit boss in a Las Vegas casino. The pit boss knows that the player's odds of winning so often are highly improbable. And the pit boss also has in, in mind a pattern of what cheating looks like. So my, I have a niece who I think cheats on Wordle. She's now gotten, in the past month, she's gotten it the first time three times. I, I, it is impossible. And so uh, uh, my wife and I have a theory of what she, she looks at the hints and she thinks that is, that's not cheating. Um, so I, I just, so yeah, so if, you, if somebody wins the if lottery, like uh, let's say a bunch of friends at work all win the lottery, uh, there will be the, the attorney general of New York will investigate, right? Because it, it, something, something's afoot, right? So, so the card counter's intelligent intervention in an otherwise random enterprise is the best explanation for his improbable accumulation of casino chips at the blackjack table. Thus, absent the count card counter's mischief, whatever sequence of winnings or losses the pit boss observes at the blackjack tables is not detachable. Dembski takes the reasoning of the explanatory filter and applies it to natural, non-artifactual objects, events, and structures. For example, DNA and the bacterial flagellum, and argues that one can reasonably conclude that these are designed and thus are as much a product of intelligence as the Scrabble sentence and the card counter's winnings. Although Dembski maintains that one can be agnostic about the identity of the design or cause of DNA, uh, he says it could be aliens or, uh, or you know, some finite god or Plato's demiurge. So he says it's not necessarily uh, the god of, of classical theism, although it's, it's pretty clear from the literature uh, that that's exactly what they're arguing for, right? Because typically, uh, the advocates of intelligent design will, will pit their view against something they call naturalism. Naturalism is the philosophical view that all that exists is the natural, physical, material world. And so uh, if it's design versus naturalism, it's really theism versus naturalism. So even though they're, they're sometimes kind of coy about it, it seems that clearly that, that, uh, that that's what they're arguing for. So Behe's case is similar uh, to, um, to Dembski's. He relies on a, a slightly different concept called irreducible complexity, which is, uh, as I said, similar to Dembski's. He argues that something is irreducibly complex if it, if it would have no function with all, it, all its parts being already in place. And thus, if an organic thing or system, uh, uh, if, if it is an organic thing or system, it could not have any precursors which, from which it evolved. Uh, but notes Behe, this would be contrary to the evolutionary story as told by Charles Darwin, 
who himself admits in The Origin of the Species, quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, unquote. Behe's stock example is a standard mousetrap you can purchase in virtually any hardware store. It consists of several parts, yet if any of them, one of them is missing, the result is not just a poorly functioning mousetrap, but a complete failure. There's no such thing, reasons Dembski, as a, uh, a mousetrap with a missing part that works half as well as it used to, or even a quarter as well. It does not catch mice at all. It is irreducibly complex, unquote. He argues that there are aspects of the biochemical world that seem irreducibly complex as well, though their structures are far more intricate and complex than a mousetrap. His two favorite examples are the cilium and the bacterial flagellum, calling them molecular machines. They are parts of cells that function like motors in order to perform a variety of tasks. Citing the relevant scientific literature, uh, Behe maintains that the cilium and the bacterial flagellum are irreducibly complex, just like the mousetrap. Since in order for either one of them to function, all of its parts must be in place. But in that case, he argues, its gradual production is a step-by-step, in a step-by-step Darwinian fashion, is quite difficult to envision. Unquote. So like Dembski, Behe moves from these empirical observations to the conclusion that the best way to account for these molecular machines is to consider that they are products of intelligent design rather than neo-Darwinian evolution. Uh, Behe writes that because design is simply the purposeful arrangement of parts, and we know from our experience that irreducibly complex entities like mousetraps require a purposeful arrangement of parts, we can reasonably conclude that certain natural entities like the uh, cilium and the bacterial flagellum are intelligent design. And like uh, Dembski, he's somewhat coy about who the designer is, could be God, could be aliens, uh, uh, but uh, he thinks that the reason why his view is not entertained by um, uh, scientists generally is that there's a bias uh, against uh, design, and he attributes this to what he calls, and Dembski calls it, uses the same term, methodological naturalism. He wants to argue that uh, that to uh, to exclude any possibility of of inferring a designer is a kind of prejudice. And what I want to what I want to argue um, is that uh, it, it it seems to uh, lead to the, the to the idea that those things in nature because remember for Dembski you've got necessity chance, and design. But under classical theism, and what I mean by classical theism, it, it, the view that, uh, that God is the creator and that God is, uh, that the, has underived eternal, simple existence, whereas everything else that exists has derived existence. Uh, but to be the creator of everything means that God also created the chance and the law as well. And so what I want to argue is that that gives us a diminished understanding of divine creation and divine action. And, it, and like the old-time creationist, 
seems to be saying that if we don't have a kind of explanatory filter or to, to, to uh, establish something like specified or irreducible complexity, therefore, naturalism is the default position. And I don't think that is, the, I, I, as Catholics, I don't think that's the right way to think about how God acts in nature or uh, God's relation to nature. So to make, to make this case, I want to talk a little bit about um, what Aquinas uh, says about uh, creation and design. And by the way, I, I think, and I want to also clarify something about, uh, about design. I, I think uh, you can make a case uh, for God by appealing to design. My critique is focusing on kind of a narrow uh, type of argument offered by the intelligent design advocates. And so I'm going to, towards the end of the lecture, talk a little bit about, give you a couple of examples of design in nature that doesn't require anything like the explanatory filter. That, uh, that the explanatory filter uh, kind of implies a kind of artifactual way of looking at design. So there's a, what's an artifactual design? My watch, right? Uh, and, but I think that, and I think obviously Aquinas teaches this, that, that there's more than one type of design. Uh, that, that living organisms have intrinsic design that differs from artifacts. All right, so, so as a Catholic, Aquinas affirmed, as all Christians confess, that God is, quote, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We say that at Mass uh, every Sunday. He also believed, as all Christians believe, the universe exhibits an underlying order that our intellects, intellects have the capacity to know. Why then do many of us maintain that Aquinas would not be an ID advocate if he were alive today? To answer this question, we have to see what Aquinas believed about the nature of God and his relation to the universe he created. According to Aquinas, God is the first cause of everything that receives its being from another. Take, for example, yourself. You are a being that receives its being from another. You are right now kept in existence as a consequence of a variety of causes, each of which exists as a consequence of other things that cannot exist on their own. To be sure, you were brought into existence by your parents, but you no longer need them to presently exist. Well, maybe you do. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the sense of your sort of ontological status. You may need, you know, cash or credit card or something like that. Um, uh, but to exist at this moment, you need other things, such as a hospitable environment, your molecular structure, a planet with an intact atmosphere so many miles from the sun and so forth. Because the world of finite dependent beings, which is the world in which we live, consists exclusively of composite things, that is, things that have parts that may or may not have existed, that do not exist essentially, and so forth, they require other things to ensure that they may remain in existence and do not fall apart. The wine in the glass next to my keyboard in my office while I'm working on an article or a book, did not pour itself, and neither is it holding itself up. It is held in place by a glass that rests on my desk, that sits on my floor, 
that is supported by my home's concrete foundation, that is upheld by the earth, and so on. Because, reasons Aquinas, each of these things is an intermediate or instrumental cause, there must be a first cause, a cause that does not receive its being from another. To employ a stock example used by Aquinas, the stone is moved by the stick, which is moved by the hand. The stick is the intermediate cause that moves the rock, if you think of the hand as the first cause. Thus, if there is no first cause, there is no intermediate cause, that is the moving stick, and the stone is never moved. Because the hand is essential for the movement of the rock, this is an example of an essentially ordered series of causes. Now, of course, the stick example is merely an illustration, since in reality, the hand is itself an intermediate cause for the person to which it belongs, and even that person is the effect of a variety of causes that keep her in existence. But those causes, in turn, are also intermediate, since they receive their being from another as well, and so on. Because, argues Aquinas, there cannot be an infinite regress of intermediate causes, there must be a first cause, and that cause is God. Now, consider this illustration. This is one, actually, that my colleague, or actually former colleague, he's now retired, moved back to the University of St. Andrews, John Haldane, uh, used in a, um, uh, a debate that he had with uh, the atheist uh, philosopher Ninian Smart, I think about 20, 25 years ago. Uh, so this is what John says. John tells the story of a new faculty reviewing system that had been instituted while he was a professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. It included these instructions, quote, the reviewer, the reviews of colleagues who have not been reviewed previously, but are to act as reviewers will also have to be arranged so that all reviewers can be reviewed before they review others, unquote. So imagine a philosophy department with 10 faculty members sitting around an oval table, none of whom has been reviewed. Because no one can qualify as a reviewed reviewer, no one reviews or gets reviewed. The policy cannot, in principle, be instituted since there has to be at least one unreviewed reviewer to get the ball rolling. On the other hand, imagine all 10 faculty members claim that they qualify as reviewers, thus implying, under the policy, that each is a reviewed reviewer. But as we have seen, that is impossible since without an unreviewed reviewer, no one gets reviewed. Just think about that. Um, in that case, if each faculty member does in fact have the authority to be a reviewer, you know immediately that one of them must be an unreviewed reviewer in violation of the policy. As Holday notes, the university realizing the impossible situation it had placed its faculty eventually designated someone as an unreviewed reviewer. In the same way, argues Aquinas, any being that must derive its causal power from another, that is, any faculty member that is not an unreviewed reviewer, requires a first cause, i.e., an unreviewed reviewer. Not every cause can be intermediate, just as not every faculty member can be a reviewer that must derive her reviewing power from another. And it does not matter whether the number of intermediate causes is finite or infinite, just as it does not matter if the universe has always existed. If the causal power of a cause is derived, then there must be a first cause. So for Aquinas, God is the first cause, not merely in a chronological sense, like your parents are your first cause, but also, more importantly, God is the first cause right here and now, keeping the entire universe and all the intermediate causes, if you will, in existence. According 
According to Aquinas, once we recognize God as first cause, there are many things that follow from it. For one thing, God is unlike any being in the causal nexus of the created order. He is the being from which all created beings derive their existence and are kept in existence. God is the underived, self-subsistent being in which all reality must participate in order to exist. This means that all causality within the universe and between the beings in it is under the providence of God. But, but given God's omnipotence, he has the power to create a universe that consists of a wide variety of beings with their own natures, both animate and inanimate, that are able to function as real causes that bring about real effects. That is, as first cause, God can bring into existence a universe of real secondary causes without com compromising his own providential control over the end to which the universe is ordered. Consequently, on this view, when natural selection works on random mutation that results in a change within a species or an entirely new species, those are secondary causes that are nevertheless under the providence of God. As Aquinas himself notes, quote, the same effect is not attributed to a natural cause and to divine power in such a way that it is partly done by God and partly done by the natural agent. Rather, it is wholly done by both according to a different way, just as the same effect is wholly attributed to the instrument and also wholly to the principal agent, unquote. Now, to give you an example that uh, outside of, of sort of the natural philosophy, Think about the way uh, Christians typically think of Scripture, right? So we say, for example, the book of Romans was written by Paul, and yet we say it's God's Word. Does that mean they're co-authors? You know, does, did they split the royalties, <laughs> right? No, or, or does, does God sort of just, so when Paul's about to make a mistake, does God sort of intervene? <laughs> No, we actually think that it is 100% God's word and 100% Paul, at least Romans, if you believe in the Pauline authorship of, of Romans. And so you think about, you take that, I mean, this is something that we also see in kind of incarnational theology, right? Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So if you think about the relationship between God and nature, it is seems perfectly reasonable to believe that if God is the first cause and he has providence over his creation, why can't secondary causes have their own natures and have, in a sense, act on their own and still be under the direction of divine providence? It seems to me that that seems perfectly reasonable. So that's Aquinas' view. So but also, Aquinas says that it's, it's also wrong to think of secondary causes either illusory or in competition with God's primary causality. So if you affirm the first, if you say, well, they're just illusory, you fall into something called occasionalism. That's an old view that, that God actually is sort of, he's the one really acting in nature all the time. <laughs> uh, that every occasion is God literally there, the agent is gone. Right? Or you kind of, if you fall into the other extreme, you, have, you kind of fall into a kind of a popular deism. That is, God sort of is this absentee landlord. He creates the universe and vanishes, right? 
because the causality of God requires that he be always present as first cause in every corner and crevice of his creation, the idea that there are large swaths of nature from which his handiwork is absent, such as the parts that do not seem to exhibit specified or reducible complexity, is to acquiesce to a view of the natural world, I think, that's hostile to belief in the God of classical theism. And here I'm going to quote from one of my favorite writers, uh, Professor Brad Gregory at the University of Notre Dame, who actually just last night gave the Thomistic Institute talk at Baylor University. And I didn't get to see him because I had to wake up early to come to my talk at NYU or to get on a plane, to catch an early plane out of Waco. So this is what Professor Gregory has written. And uh, he's, uh, he's a giant uh, in, uh, he's, a, he's a historian who's got a, um, an STL in philosophy. Uh, and he's, his, his sort of major work is a book called The Unintended Reformation. Uh, if you ever get a chance, uh, it's, a, it's a massive doorstop kind of book, but it's, uh, it's, it's really worth reading. Uh, so this is what Professor Gregory says. He said, advocates of intelligent design posit that ordinary biological processes of natural selection and genetic mutation can account for much but not everything in the evolution of species. The remainder requiring recourse to God's intervention. Insofar as proponents of intelligent design posit normally autonomous natural processes usually devoid of God's influence, they share important assumptions with the new atheists like Dennett and Dawkins. The intelligent design proponents scramble to find remaining places for supernatural intervention. The new atheists claim there are none left. Both assume that God, conceived in spatial and quasi-spatial terms, needs room to be God, which is precisely what traditional Christian theology says God does not need, unquote. So, ironically, you, you get this sort of interesting parallel, right? The kind of two uh, kind of popular public intellectuals, the idea advocates and the new atheists sort of competing with each other and how best to account for these aspects of nature that seem to be difficult for a particular understanding of nature by those that uh, claim that it supports unbelief. Now, I want to, I want to, I noticed that I, that I'm getting close to probably uh, my time because I want to open the floor for questions, but I want to uh, just briefly conclude by saying a few things about detecting design. So and I, I've been critical of the intelligent design advocates, but I'm not critical of the idea that nature is designed. Now, if you have ever read Aquinas uh, on this, um, one of the things that he talks about, when he talks about causes, so today when we talk about something causing something else, like you say, well, who, um, uh, so, oh, this is, a, this is actually a great example. <laughs> I just thought of, forgotten about this old joke by, um, I forget the comedian's name. He, he, he said, um, he says, cop, a police officer pulled me over and asked me why I was speeding. And I said, I put my foot to the floor. Okay. Uh, it's, he got better laughs than me, apparently. Uh, so, uh, so what the police officer was asking for was for enough. Uh, a final cause, like why were you driving, right? But what um, the comedian gave him was the efficient cause. So Aquinas believes that there's four causes 
that everything, it, it, there's a material cause, an efficient cause, a formal cause, and a final cause. The final cause is the end to which something is ordered. So think about something like eyesight, right? Uh, you go to the optometrist, my brother, I have a brother who's an eye doctor. Let's so say I go to my brother, Jim, and I say, and he says, well, Frank, you, um, you need, uh, you need uh, glasses. Supposing I, I, hold the, I hold the view, I, I'm a kind of uh, a real hardline materialist, and I do not believe that, 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 there, that there's any design in nature, that there are no intrinsic purposes, and that you can't get an ought from an is, which is a kind of, kind of slogan that people use. And so I go to my brother, and, I, and he says, well, Frank, you have 2200 vision. I have to prescribe these uh, glasses to you for, or these, these lenses. And I say, oh, you can't get an off from it. Right? And, and of course, you know, I, that would show, first off, a misunderstanding of what it means to make a judgment about when I am not using my my powers correctly, right? We do this all the time. We say when we, we can criticize someone for being ignorant, right? That assumes what? That their mind is ordered towards a particular end to acquire knowledge. Or if we say somebody is bigoted or prejudiced or has, uh, let's say, uh, lied, right? All these judgments presuppose a kind of end to these actions, right? People are entitled to the truth, right? Uh, and that is deeply connected to what it seems to be with the purpose of communication. So those are all kind of examples. I'm going to give you an example, ironically, from the work of Richard Dawkins. So Dawkins published this book in 2004 called uh, The God Delusion. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I mean, there was 18 years ago when it came out, it really was a big deal and uh, he's kind of fallen out of favor in terms of public intellectuals. But, but when I was a, a, a younger professor, he was, you know, somebody to be reckoned with. And uh, he, he and a few other uh, public intellectuals who were atheists uh, had uh, published uh, several books. And they were, it was Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Richard Dawkins. And they were called the, the four horsemen of the, of, of the atheism or unbelief. So um, he tells the story in his book, The God Delusion, of a, uh, a Harvard-educated paleontologist uh, named Kurt Wise. Uh, Kurt Wise, uh, I've actually met Kurt Wise. He, he is actually both Kurt and Wise, which is kind of remarkable. Um, so so Kurt, Kurt Wise, a Har he's a Harvard-trained tra paleontologist who did his undergraduate degree in geology at the University of Chicago. Wise grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home where he was taught that because the Bible's creation account should be read literally, the earth is less than 10,000 years old. Uh, when Wise realized that he could not become a professor at a major research university without abandoning this way of reading scripture, he made a very painful choice. And this is actually in an autobiographical essay that he wrote. And this is what he says, quote, uh, I accepted the word of God and rejected all that would ever counter it, including evolution, unquote. Uh, he did his PhD, by, by the way, under Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard. Um, he was a, and he's, I've met Kurt, very bright guy. Uh, so in assessing Wise's decision, this is what Dawkins says. Quote, as a scientist, I am hostile to fundamentalist religion 
because it actively debauches the scientific enterprise. It teaches us not to change our minds and not to want to know exciting things that are available to know. It subverts science and saps the intellect. The saddest example I know is that of the American geologist Kurt Wise. The wound to his career and his life's happiness was self-inflicted, so unnecessary, so easy to escape. All he had to do was toss out the Bible or interpret it symbolically or allegorically as the theologians do. Instead, he did the fundamentalist thing and tossed out science, evidence, and reason along with all his, his dreams and hopes. Now, a couple of things that... Um, that I think that I think uh, Dawkins doesn't recognize what he's doing in his analysis of Kurt Wise. Uh, he seems to be assuming a kind of final causality. Okay, so let me go. So think about it. Dawkins laments Wise's career path. He seems to be saying then that the human intellect has a certain potency a final cause that is ordered towards the acquisition of truth and that anything interferes with the intellect's finality, such as fundamentalist religion, ought to be avoided. For whatever the intellect really knows must conform to reality. Guess who said something similar? Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, quote, truth resides in its primary aspect in the intellect. Now, since everything is according as it has the form proper to its nature, the intellect, insofar as it is knowing, must be true, so far as it has the likeness of the thing known, this being its form as knowing. For this reason, truth is defined by the conformity of intellect and thing, and hence to know this conformity is to know the truth. Unquote. And when Dawkins says that Wise made a choice that was contrary to his own happiness, Dawkins seems to be saying that the final cause of the human person as a whole is happiness. And that one has an obligation to act in ways that lead one to acquiring this. On this, Dawkins will get no argument from Thomas Aquinas, who affirms that, quote, man's last end is happiness, which all men desire, as Augustine says, unquote. Although Aquinas believed that God, the sovereign good, is the object and cause of happiness, one need not believe in God to recognize, as Dawkins does, that human beings by nature order towards happiness. Aquinas, of course, maintained that nothing short of God could suffice for perfect happiness since everything that gives us imperfect happiness, pleasure, wealth, honor, and so forth, is fleeting and temporary. Nevertheless, the point here is that Dawkins, despite his best efforts, cannot rid himself of the common sense reflexes that require the reality of final causality. So, in conclusion, intelligent design theorists, many of whom were my friends, want to defend the rationality of belief in God against the incursion of naturalism in our academic culture. For this reason, at least from the perspective of this theist, their hearts are in the right place. However, the way in which they conceive of God's creative power and action, in my judgment, concedes far too much to the naturalism they want to defeat. It is my hope that they reconsider their project in light of the insights of Aquinas and the classical theistic tradition that he represents. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith. 
and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.